0: Luke chapter 14, where we were last week, part two of the message that I started last week, I still put it under the banner of encouraging words for discouraging days. No, period. More, period. Excuses, period, part two. Last week we read how in the parable of Jesus, these people were invited to a great feast given by a very important person. And one by one, the Bible says they began to make excuse. One said, I've got some land I just bought. I've got to go take a look at it. The second one said, well, I've just bought five yoke of oxen. And I've got to go test them out. I've got to prove them. And the last one said, hey, I just got married. And in each case, they made an excuse. Keep in mind that it begins by saying that with one consent. So there may have been some collaboration before they made their statements. "That Are you going? I'm not going. Are you going? I'm not going. See, that's really the point. You were given an invitation. Now, those of you that are sitting here were given an invitation to accept Christ, and at some point in time, you did. And all over the world right now, people are giving an invitation to accept Christ. And some are, and many are not. But in the last day, as the parable states, there will be no excuse. No excuse. And Let me say something further. For those of you who say, yeah, I'm definitely born again, and I don't doubt it because some of you have known for many, many years. I don't doubt it. But what are you doing with your gifts and talents for the kingdom? You better read Matthew chapter 25. There's no more time for excuses. Why you can't serve. Why you can't be involved. Why you're not rising up to be what God made you to be. There's no more time for excuses. It's too late. The hour is very late. In any case, we see that they all made excuses. And I shared with you last week that there's a difference between a reason and an excuse. So I asked you last week to go home that day and begin an examination of your life. To see if what you have is reasons that are valid before God. That God would accept because we all have limitations in our lives. Or they're just simply excuses. Let me tell you this story. True story. Here's a young man whose father was the town doctor in Barnes Barrow, PA. A coal mining town. So a rough area. And he was the town doctor. One day, nobody really knows why. His children don't know why. He gave up his practice, and even though at one time he was a deacon in a church, gave up Christ, gave up Christianity, became a very intense critic of Christ, the Bible, Christianity, Christians, and so on. Became the town drunk, a fairly notable doctor. He went from this, we'll say, prestigious position, fulfilling his call on life as a doctor, to walking away from practice of medicine, turning it over to alcohol. Not only alcohol, but the abuse of his wife, physical abuse to his wife, of his children. When this young boy was born, this former doctor now turned a hate-filled critic of the, well, the world, but of Christ in particular, Christianity. He didn't even bother to name him. So this young boy went around, and people didn't know he didn't have a name. So people say, hey, you, or guy, didn't have a name. I mean, who's born in America and doesn't have a name? What father doesn't take the time to look at his son and feel some pride, as we all have? Not every son turns out so well. But initially, in the beginning, you feel this pride towards this baby, and you name him something. One of the names I had picked out for one of our sons was Thor. (laughs) But my wife wouldn't have it, so... We settled on some others. Thor, it's a powerful name. Thursday, by the way. That's how we get Thursday, Thor's Day. In any case, that may have been a bit much, but here's the doctor who doesn't even name the boy. So the boy named himself. After a period of time, he got sick of people saying, hey, you, or guy, come here. And he named himself this kind of unusual name, Sim, S-I-M, Isocrates, for whatever his reason was. That became his name, Sim Isocrates, named himself. Now, he had a sister, Sim, whose name was Oneida. And she was in the same abusive relationship that the boy was as well. And one day she turned her heart over to Christ and she was born again of the Spirit of God. Now the father, who was both bankrupt and broke and dying, she took him in and she nursed him. And when she became born again, which was at the same period that she took her father in, her father said, you just go up there and die up where the church was. Very mean, bitter, old man. And then finally, this doctor died at the age of 55 from alcohol-related abuse, and he passed on. But now Sim, the young boy, he wanted to know what was the source. Remember, now keep this in mind, there's a big point here. That Oneida, the woman, and Sim, the young boy, were raised in the same home. Same father, same situation. Oneida decided to make something of herself. She received Christ. Sim found out from his sister what had happened. Had she received Christ? And he did the same. Now, a young man, where definitely all the odds are against him. I mean, he's tough enough being raised in a coal mining city. It's a rough blue collar life. But when your father doesn't even name you, and he was given over to alcohol, you're watching your mother be physically abused and your sister be abused and all of that. It's easy to go around in life making excuses for why you are now an alcoholic. I had a bad father. All this nonsense. Sim decided that he would go to medical school. And he put himself through medical school. There's nobody there to pay. This is back in the day before everybody was getting things for free. And by the way, there's still plenty of Americans who are not taking things for free, but they're going out and doing what they can for themselves. And if they profess Christ, they're doing it with the help of Christ, saying, I can do all things through Christ, which strengthens me. So Sim put himself through medical college, paid the bills himself eventually, became a doctor and went over to Africa as a missionary. He discovered a cure for a disease called Noma. It hits mainly children, primarily children. At that time, no one could find an answer, a palliative, some way to stop this disease. He found a cure for it and spent many years with his wife after he got married. And by all estimations, became a success in Christ. While his father died at age 55 from alcohol, and probably wasn't the alcohol as much as it was the bitterness and the anger and the hatred and the vitriol and all these things that are killing many Americans today and other people around the world as well. He lived well into his 90s. I looked him up one time. I think he reached 100 years old. Medical doctor, missionary. But he went on to write a book that I would highly recommend to you called None of These Diseases, S.I. McMillan. It's been revised a couple of times since he first wrote it, and it's a very, very interesting book, very encouraging book, based on Exodus 15:26. If thou wilt diligently hearken unto the voice of the Lord thy God and keep all the statutes, and so on, you know, keep his ways, and what have you. Then I will put none of these diseases upon thee that I brought upon the Egyptians, for I am the Lord that healeth thee. And that's what his book is based upon. Here's the point. Today we live in a culture where if you're only one color, you have a bad life, but all the rest, people like me, we've had it easy. Well, we haven't had it easy. No one in this world has it easy. No one in this life has it easy. But here's a man that could have used every excuse in the world to not only not be something in life, to not even go get a job, but to constantly talk about his home life and how dad beat mom and all the language that had to go with it and the drunkenness and the bitterness. But two of them, Oneida, his sister, and this young boy that named himself Sim and now is, well is he passed away, but his name was S.I. McMillan did something in the circumstances and with the circumstances that he was presented with. Life, if I could say it this way, life deals all of us a hand. And you got to play the hand that you have. And you either got to play it or you got to fold and get out of the game. Because that's the only two choices that life gives you. I could say God, but let me just lower it just a little bit. Now, God reaches out to you and says, I can make something of you. I can take you out of this situation and I can make something of you. But the choice is yours. The choice is yours. And will it be rough? Was it rough for S.I. McMillan to come from where he came from to reach the heights of medical practice and other things that he has a great legacy, by the way, with his children and those that knew him? Does it take effort? Yeah. Is it easy? No. But everybody makes a choice everything that you are today has been a result of your choices. Not somebody else's, not the world, not what's going on in Washington, nothing. Your life is right now the result of your choices. You are the sum total of what you have decided you are going to do, and I'll stay with my expertise, with Jesus. We have run out of time, my friends. There is no period more period, excuses, period, no more time for it, get in, well, you might as well get out, because it's only a matter of time before Jesus says, you've been out for a long time, you say you've been in the way, well, that's an expression for Christianity, you've been in the way for 60 years, 50 years, whatever, and God's going to say to you, you were in the way for a few years, and then you gave up, and you just never became what you could have become by your own choice, Now once again, let me say this again, maybe not as dramatic as S.I. McMillan's life, but we all have had stories that say, oh, you know, reasons why we can't excel, reasons why we can't get out of the mediocrity, the reasons why we can't get to church on time, reasons why we can't pray, reasons why we can't memorize, reasons why we can't, but that's a choice. That is not a sentence put on you by this great and merciful God that we serve. That's a choice that you made to limit yourself. Because Jesus said with God, nothing is impossible. So you accept it and you move with it or you reject it. or you try to compromise it, we'll get to that in just a few minutes. Now look with me in Luke 14:25 where the Bible says and there went great multitudes with him and he turned and said unto them if any man come to me and hate not his father and mother and wife and children and brethren and sisters yea his own life also he cannot be my disciple and whosoever doth not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple for which of you intending to build a tower sitteth not down first and counteth the cost whether he have sufficient to finish it lest haply after he hath laid the foundation and is not able to finish it all that behold it begin to mock him saying this man began to build and was not able to finish. Let me just stop and just say something very quickly. How many people are out there right now that once came to this church or some other church And now they've dropped out of the race. They dropped out of the game. And people have come around them and said, you started, but you didn't finish. And they're just joining with them. Yeah, and there goes the excuses again. My father was a drunk. He beat my mother. He did this. He did that. And that's just an excuse. And it's a choice. And I will say this. I don't know. It's the ultimate motivation. But I don't want anybody mocking me to say, well, he started well. But he didn't finish at all or finished poorly. Let it not be said of you either. Verse 31. Or what king going to make war against another king sitteth not down first and consulteth whether he be able with 10,000 to meet him that cometh against him with 20,000. Or else, while the other is yet a great way off, he sendeth an ambassage, which is an ambassador, and desireth conditions of peace. So likewise, whosoever he be of you that forsaketh not all that he hath, he cannot be my disciple. Salt is good, but if the salt have lost its savor, which means its saltiness, wherewith shall it be seasoned? It is neither fit for the land nor yet for the dunghill, but men cast it out. He that has ears to hear, let him hear. This is, by the way, as you know, is a very familiar statement that comes from Jesus. Whoever can really hear what's being said, then you hear it, but the rest will not hear it. As it was in the days of Jesus. He spoke so often to multitudes and multitudes, and so many of them had no clue what he was talking about. And so they rejected him. And the same is true today. And that's a decision. And in the end, it will be registered in the mind of God at the great white throne judgment as an excuse you see because God has promised to supply every single one of us with what we need to make it and to not make it means we're calling God a liar you didn't give me what I need you handed me a hand I couldn't play it and God said I gave you that hand you play it and I will give you the grace to win and then you decide whether you believe what he just said or you don't and this game goes on for a while by the way and it takes time to work these things out But in the end, it's your decision. And I said to you just a few days ago, oh, you say, well, I'm a senior citizen. I hope the young people hear this. I hope you hear it. I hope you that are 64, 5, 6, 7, in your 70s and beyond, you decide what the rest of your life is going to be, even if it's only for 24 more hours. You decide what you're going to be. You decide what you're going to believe. You decide what you're going to do. Today is the day of salvation. And today, if you hear his voice... You respond or not. But in the end, it will be registered not as a reason, but as an excuse. And God does not accept excuses. Now, we read in Luke 14, 25 and 6. Let me read this again. And there went great multitudes with him, and he turned and said unto them, If any man come unto me, and hate not his father and mother and wife and children and brethren and sisters, yea, and his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. Now, quickly, and I think you understand this, but quickly, the one salient factor about Christ is love. He loved the unlovely. He loved people nobody loved. Some of them didn't even love themselves. But how then can he talk about hatred? Well, it's a hyperbolic expression. What he's saying is that I'm God come in the flesh, and your allegiance to me must be supreme before all of these other relationships and everyone that he names, including your own life, is in your family. That's why, and I poke fun, believe me. At the third excuse, I can't get there because I just got married. Well, I don't want to hit this, the wife won't let me go thing too hard. Because I know, and I told you last week, men do the same thing to their wives. But it's still a choice. I was just listening the other day because it's one of my favorite albums made in 1979 by Bob Dylan. It's a slow train coming. That was one of the most prescient, the entire album. Came out two years after my wife and I were born again. There's a slow train coming. Look it up, listen to it. You don't have to be a Bob Dylan fan, but those lyrics on Slow Train Coming, the entire album, really prescient. But the first song on the album is you got to serve somebody. And it may be the devil and it may be the Lord, but you've got to serve somebody. And today, maybe you came in here, you're watching by the live stream, or you're listening by way of radio. You so say, I don't serve anybody, but you are. If you have refused to serve the Lord Jesus Christ, you don't know it maybe, but you're serving the prince and the power of the air, Satan. And he's got you right by your brain. I wasn't thinking of the brain, but brain. (laughs) He'll squeeze you every time. And you'll say, I'm an independent. You're nobody. You're a slave. Slavery, I may add, isn't peculiar to color. Think of the Jews. Study world history. And look at how some of these people overcame their obstacles instead of always making a political situation out of it. One of the things about stress is a feeling of not being in control. So we're going to go to the polls in two days and we think that we're in control and you are mistaken. We are not in control. We are Americans with a responsibility and a right to vote for whom we want. But God still says, I set up and I cast down. How all that works? Well, I haven't still figured it all out, but I know this. I'm responsible for my thoughts, words, and deeds. I'm responsible for my choices. God rules over all, as Benjamin Franklin said, and serves I have lived a long time. And the longer I live, the more convincing proves, I see, of this truth, that God governs in the affairs of men. And I'm going to say this to you again. However the election goes on Tuesday, you remember to look at God all the time and never look at flesh. Never, ever. Stress. I mentioned that because everybody's stressed in America and around the world. And here's something I want to share with you about discipleship in the Lord. There was an experiment done on a college campus some years ago on the issue of stress. What they did is they decided to take two dorms and they were going to pump in music. And they left one dorm with all the controls. They can control the volume. They could control what was played. One dorm had no control over the volume, what was played, and the other one did. And when they studied them and took blood work and what they do to find the hormone levels, these people were extremely stressed because they had no control over the music. They had no control over the volume. They had no control over what was played and so on and so forth. These people did, and they were less stressed because they had control. And we feel stressed sometimes when Jesus says things like this. And we're shocked. And no wonder... I call them stadiums, are filling up with people where preachers are telling them all the things that they want to hear. But it's not the truth. God is in control. You flip a lever on Tuesday. If it don't come out the way you like, you better remember God is in control and he's working out his plan. So you don't stress yourself over something you cannot control. Jesus said if we're going to be his disciples, in essence, he says, I'm going to give you grace Look at verse 28. For which of you, intending to build the tower, sitteth not down first, and counteth the cost, whether he have sufficient to finish it. How does this deal with, say this little prayer? There you are. There you go. Is a disciple actually someone who's born again? Is someone who's born again actually a disciple, or do we separate the two? Let me say quickly this. When you receive Jesus, you receive a person. You don't receive his left arm or his right arm. You receive everything about Jesus. When you're born again, you are a disciple. And if you're a disciple, then you must be born again. And a disciple is a pupil, a learner. I'm a learner. You're a learner. But he sets out here these standards to be a learner in Christ and saved. Unless happily after he hath laid the foundation, is not able to finish it. All that behold it began to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish And then he talks about the king who won't go to war, shouldn't go to war unless he can figure out, do I have enough? If I am prepared enough to beat this army that's coming against me? I only have 10,000 soldiers. He may need allies. He may need more whatever, weapons, ammunition, preparation, training, whatever he needs to say, I'm prepared. Rather than sending out an ambassador and say, look, we surrender. We surrender. Here's the little white flag. We surrender. How many professing Christians have already surrendered when they signed on for the gospel as we read it in the Bible? And they said, I surrender. I give up. I can't do this. And here's the irony. No, you can't do it. But through Christ, you can. Our help comes from the Lord, not from men. Some of you are old enough in the Lord to remember Steve Camp. He had 21 number one hits in Christian music. And in 1986, he wrote a song, I want to read you the lyrics, called Cheap Grace. Now, here's a Christian musician you can actually listen to. But just to forward just a little bit, in 1998, he came up with 107 theses of his own in the tradition of Martin Luther. And this is what he was calling for. He was calling for reformation in the music industry in Christianity, some things you've heard me say. I want to just read to you just a little bit of the preamble to his 107 theses about calling for reformation inside the church, but specifically inside Christian music. Listen to what he says. He wrote in 1998, Steve Campbell, The need for reformation and revival is great in evangelicalism today. Money has become the number one plumb line. Now this is a guy who's got 21 number one hits in Christian music, or had. Money has become the number one plumb line and prerequisite for ministry, secular ownership of Christian publishing houses, which is true. Music companies, bookstore chains, and radio stations abound. And I've dealt with many of these, and I've rejected them unsound doctrine is spoken against but not stood against and politics continues to be touted as the great savior for a nation in moral and spiritual decline but the great hope for any generation including ours is the gospel of the lord jesus christ he alone is the answer may we pray today beloved that the lord would revisit his people as he did in the great awake this is 1998 in the great awakening through Jonathan Edwards and renew our hearts toward him. May he bring revival to his church in every nation, repentance from sin, and reformation in the recovery of his gospel of justification by faith alone. May the Lord open his heavens, wake us up from the lukewarm Laodicea and sleep that plagues us so much in evangelicalism and revive us again. That's coming from a Christian music artist. He's also a pastor. To that, Steve Camp, I say amen. Cheap Grace, 1986. I feel sick when I look at the sin in my life. I can't take it any longer. All along, I've known what to do, what is right, but my heart wasn't stronger. Why do I do the things I don't want to do? Do you ever feel the same way? Well, that sin has got its hold over you. You try to stop, but you just can't walk away. Why do I listen to the teaching that tickles my ears, how they play on my emotions, how they laugh at me through their tears, There's no call for my devotion. Am I a man enough to face the truth? Do you ever feel the same way? Like the world has got its hold over you. You try to stop, but you just can't. Talk away. Cheap grace. We've watered it down the blood he shed. We say we've given all, but we haven't hardly bled. Cheap grace. You know, it cost him everything. It's easy to abuse when you think it is for free. In these last days, men's hearts will turn hard. This is a song. These are the lyrics. They become lovers of pleasure. Oh, how they run away from their God to seek other treasures. Why do I do the things I don't want to do? Do you ever feel the same way? Like the world has got its hold over you. You try to stop, but you just can't talk away. Cheap grace, we've watered down the bloody shed. We say we've given all, but we have Hardly bled. Cheap grace, you know it cost him everything. It's easy to abuse, oh, what you think is for free. Am I man enough to face the truth? Do you ever feel the same way, like the world has got its hold over you? You try to stop, but you just can't talk away. Cheap grace, we've watered down the blood he shed. We say we've given all, but we have hardly bled. Cheap grace, you know it cost him everything. It's easy to abuse. What you think is for free. And the song goes on with a few other verses in that vein. Steve Camp, 1986, calling for reformation in Christian music as well as the church. But the expression cheap grace actually originated with Dietrich Bonhoeffer. I must say this before I mention and read his quote Dietrich Bonhoeffer was not an Orthodox Christian pastor and theologian, he denied many of the major doctrines of Christianity. But his quote, while he was in labor camps in and during the Second World War, which he was eventually hung, these he wrote before he was hung. And with this, I think we can agree. Bonhoeffer wrote in the book now called The Cost of Discipleship cheap grace means grace sold on the market like cheap jack's wares. The sacraments, the forgiveness of sin, and the consolations of religion are thrown away at cut prices. Grace is represented as the church's inexhaustible treasure from which she showers blessings with generous hands without asking questions of or fixing limits. Grace without price, grace without cost. The essence of grace, we suppose, is that the account has been paid in advance and because it has been paid, everything can be had for nothing. Since the cost was infinite, the possibilities of using and spending it are infinite. What would grace be if it were not cheap? Cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance. Baptism without church discipline. Communion without confession. Absolution without personal confession. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship. Grace without the cross. Grace without Jesus Christ living and incarnate. And As I said, Bonhoeffer was not an orthodox theologian or pastor, but that's true. Then he went on to write this, costly grace is the treasure hidden in the field for the sake of a man will go and sell all that he has. It is the pearl of great price to buy, which the merchant will sell all his goods. It is the kingly rule of Christ, for whose sake a man will pluck out the eye, which causes him to stumble. It is the call of Jesus Christ, at which the disciple leaves his nets and follows him. Costly grace is the gospel, which must be sought again and again, the gift which must be asked for, the door at which a man must knock. Such grace is costly because it calls us to follow, and it is grace because it calls us to follow Jesus Christ. It is costly because it costs a man his life. Now listen, he wrote this before he was hung. This is not an armchair general just talking about, eh, you know, he was hung. He died in the concentration camp. I reject his theology, but this I accept. In other words, he actually performed what he was writing when he wrote these letters. And by the way, it was said of him in these concentration camps that he was always finding somebody that he could minister to, somebody he can go over to. Remember, most of them are going to be Jews. He's a Lutheran pastor, unorthodox, but he's a Lutheran pastor. And others were writing of him when we knew Bonhoeffer. He would always be cheering us up and cheering us on and motivating us. It is grace because it gives a man the only true life. It is costly because it condemns sin and grace because it justifies the sinner. Above all, it is costly because it cost God the life of his son. You were bought at a price. And what has cost God much cannot be cheap for us. Above all, it is grace because God did not reckon his son too dear a price to pay for our life, but delivered him up for us all. Costly grace is the incarnation of God. Again, is theology, not acceptable. His life He lived it, and I believe this is what the grace of Christ is all about. We read the text. What happens when the salt loses its saltiness? Salt is good in verse 34. But if the salt has lost his savor or saltiness, wherewith shall it be seasoned? It is neither fit for the land nor for the dunghill, but men cast it out. He that hath ears to hear, let him hear what I'm saying. I added that. If you have ears to hear, hear what I'm saying. If you lose what you have, there's no restoring it. Sodium chloride, which is our table salt, has a tremendous bond. In other words, sodium and chloride, when they come together, they're just happily to get married, and they don't come apart too easily. But you can separate it. Chemically, you can separate it. And one of the easiest ways to separate sodium and chloride to make it worth nothing is to put it in water. Well, try it. What happens when you get a little moisture in your salt shaker? You know. Why do we put rice on the top of it during summer months when it's moist? It's to preserve the salt from getting separated chemically so that it's good for nothing. Who puts salt that is not salty on anything when that's what you want? You want it to be seasoned. Of course, salt has been for many generations used as a preservative. It still is. I gave up processed foods for that very reason. I can't calculate the amount of sodium going into my body if I'm going to be eating out of a can, a bag, a box, a bottle. Yeah, salt likes to stay together. But put it in something like water. You could do it with electricity, too. Put it in something like water, and all of a sudden, it's not salt anymore. And when you compromise the gospel, when preachers, I say preachers, when preachers don't accent the verses they've read, they went to school with, well, at least in the past, and they say things I've heard this said to me as a pastor from people I know who are pastors, Well, you know, I say, well, why don't you talk about hell? Well, you know, why don't you talk about, well, you know, we can't scare people away. Scare people away. You're better than Jesus. You're better than the one that says, you want to follow me? Count the cost. You're better than Jesus because you're clever enough to draw them in with some type of program or some type of plan. You're better than Jesus as you rip pages out of your Bible and refuse to speak about it. That's the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what I'm called to do. And I can't mitigate. I can't amend. I can't change the Bible. Or I put myself in peril. I put myself in peril if I start compromising this Bible, whether in the way I live, in the way I think, and the way I speak, and so on, and the way I preach. It's not for me to say, oh, I could get a greater crowd if I just leave off this doctrine. I can get a greater crowd if I just leave off this doctrine. If I tell people, living for Christ is the easiest thing you'll ever do in your life. I can pack a church, believe me. I'm as clever as any of these guys on television, and maybe more so. I got more gifts, and I got more talents. But God stuck me here, in this place here. And you listen to me. We are all stuck here. We are stuck. Well, we're stuck together, yeah. We're stuck. Remember that the people of the upper crust, they're not really bread, just a bunch of crumbs stuck together. In any case, yeah, we're stuck together. And God has sent us here to the most difficult place in America. How do I know that? I've read the statistics. The Capital District area, Albany, Troy, Schenectady, and it reaches out here where it gets, I think, a bit worse, is number 100 on the list for biblical illiteracy. So no wonder we have so much compromise and so many clever meetings and seminars of how to get people in, how to attract the seekers. How did Jesus attract the seekers? You want to be my disciple? And you don't hate your father and your mother and your sister and your brother and your children and your own life. You cannot be my disciple. Well, Jesus, you need to go to a seminar. (laughs) You need to know how it is. You need to read How to Win Friends and Influence People by Andrew Carnegie. You need to get some of the positive message in there. Well, let me tell you something very quickly. To become a disciple of Jesus, think about the benefits He says, and nothing shall be impossible unto you. I'm still working on that one. I really mean, that stretches me beyond even my imagination. But I'm not denying it, and I'm going for it. I'm going for it in my prayer life. I'm bugging God on certain issues, and they're minor issues. wouldn't make a difference to you, me, or anybody. I'm just going to prove this thing in my life again and again and again. Because you see, no matter what the cost is, the benefits are greater. Oh, bless the Lord, oh my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, oh my soul. And forget not all of his benefits. Is that positive enough for you? So he says, come in through the narrow gate. Very, very close. Few there be that find it. Many shall seek to enter in and shall not be able. But when you're in, the benefits of being a christ lover of being a disciple of christ worth the cost but you must count the cost this thing does not just fall off the tree like ripe fruit and there it is in the ground you pick it up by the way if you're clam digging and you're not digging and the clams are laying on the shore which happened to us some years ago they're usually not good now we ate them anyway but they're usually not good oh look at this we get all these clams today Instead of going into the sand and digging for them. And that's what you have to do. You want to know what the Bible states? You're going to have to dig. Amen. You're going to have to put your brain to use. Oh, Lord. He said put the brain to use. I've got so many problems. you got the same problems S.I. McMillan had. you got the same type of depression that he had. you got the same type of anxieties that he grew up with. I bet you there's not a person in this room that does. Or watching by way of television. And you still make excuses. He didn't. And there's so many others that I could point out that didn't, who had a real rough start, or in the middle somewhere got rough. Read about Hudson Taylor when he went to China. Nobody else would go. And he didn't just go right to the shores, he went inland. He went all the way deep into China. And his saying was that God's work done God's way shall never lack God's supply. And there he is, basically by himself. When he went back to England, he drew a few people with him and he got his medical degree and he came back. After a short while, they were all complaining. It's too hard here. It's too rough here. We didn't know this and we didn't know that. By the way, he was also heavily criticized in England for dressing like he was Chinese with Chinese garb. He grew his hair out. But he suffered all those things to be an example of many men and many women of God who were people of true faith, who proved with their lives. This gospel works. This gospel works watering down the gospel, amending it, changing it, skipping over the difficult verses, just so you keep coming back. That's not what a preacher is. In the strictest sense of the word, a preacher is actually a prophet. Not a prophet like Jeremiah and all that, but when we're quoting from them and when we're preaching them, we are preaching the Bible's prophecies and principles. No preacher's given the right, and you're not given the right in your personal studies. so why I don't like that verse. And that Ray Barnett, Pastor Ray, he's always saying, I'm going someplace else. Well, then you go. But you remember, if you're not hearing the gospel of Jesus Christ in his purest sense, you will be held accountable because you knew better. You knew better. In the 20th century, in 1910, somebody described London in these words. They were mixing all kinds of occultic practices with religion and loved to call themselves Christians. And we have the exact same thing today in America. Mixing all kinds of ideology, philosophy, and occultic practices inside the church. You've seen them. Those of you that have been with me a long time, I've showed them to you on the videos. I say it's nonsense, it's worse than nonsense, it's demonic. Think Satan loves the gospel? He hates the gospel. It's his nemesis, it's the thing that has taken him down. There he fell from heaven like lightning, he's going to fall again. And those who have Christ in this biblical sense and stick to the text, and stick to the words of Christ and say, Amen, Lord. Strengthen me, give me grace, but Amen. We will be standing on the battlefield at the end with the... Sword and the dented shield, and the hamlet that may just be a little bit crooked because we were actually in a real battle, but having done all, we're still standing. Picture the blood dripping off the edge of the sword of all the demons and devils that we have killed in Jesus' name. And you remind yourself we're not wrestling in America against flesh and blood, we're wrestling against principalities and powers and evil, and evil that came into this country because the church dropped the ball. The church didn't preach the gospel. The church became watered down and the salt became good for nothing. The salt became good for nothing. And now the real pity is that they're giving it to other people who many times come into churches. And because the pastor is supposed to be the uh, elite understood one, you know, the, the initiated. He waters down the people, and spoils them, enables them. No. Jeremiah chapter 8 verse 6 I hearkened and heard, but they spake not aright, talking about the false prophets. No man repented him of his wickedness, saying, "What have we done? Everyone turned to his course, which means his own way, And the, as the horse rusheth into battle, yet the stork in the heaven knoweth her appointed times, and the turtle and the crane and the swallow observe the time of their coming. My people know not the judgment of the Lord. How do ye say we are wise, and the law of the Lord is with us? See, that's the combination of religion. Hmm? and occultic practices which they were doing during the times of Jeremiah. How do you say, we've got the word, we've got the Lord, we've got the law? Lo, certainly in vain made he it. The pen of the scribes is in vain. In verse 8, Jeremiah 8, Jeremiah 9, 8, 9. The wise men are ashamed. They are dismayed and taken. Lo, they have rejected the word of the Lord. And what wisdom is in them? Therefore, listen. Therefore, will I give their wives unto others... And their fields to them that shall inherit them. For everyone from the least unto the greatest is given to covetousness, the love of money. For the prophet, even unto the priest, everyone dealeth falsely. For they have healed the hurt of the daughter of my people slightly, saying, peace, peace, when there is no peace. We need to return to the gospel as it is. And here's the great blessing in this ministry, in this church. You can go home and read it for yourself. I don't tell you as Morris Cerullo once told the crowd, you close that Bible, I'm the prophet, I'm the speaker here, it's not going to get done through that book, you got to listen to me. My friend was there that day and he spoke up in front of hundreds of people with his Bible and he says, not me brother, not me, this is the word of God. Another woman, she got up out of her seat, kind of a big woman, and she got up out of her seat and he from the platform, Morris Cerullo, said, stop that woman, he didn't know that she was from Brooklyn. (laughs) and filled with the holy ghost i told that to one of my leaders one time i said not only am i filled with the holy ghost and from the bronx well yonkers and i said every time you push me i get more adamant to stick with this thing and i did and he was the first general superintendent of my former denomination to resign in the midst the first one why because i kept the pressure up and you say you think you did it i do i really do because nobody else was doing it that's how i factor it in Nobody else was doing it. I kept the pressure up. He pushed me and pushed me and pushed me and pushed me. And some people, when you push them, they get worse. They get worse. And I'm one of them. Anyway, this woman got up, let me out. He told the usher, to stop that woman. She said, you ain't stopping me. Now it's a big deal. You know, now the seminar's taking on a different flavor. <laughs> this character, I wish I had my jacket with me. This character, when he first came on the stage, has you know how the artists and the Hollywood guys and, the, and all these people they wear the jacket, they don't put their arms in it, kind of <laughs> walk like this. And he actually turned around and says, Isn't somebody gonna take my jacket off? I wish I was there. <laughs> I would have taken his jacket off with his shirt. <laughs> Here's your shirt. Here's your jacket. I wrote to you in the email. There's a great falling away that we read about in the Bible. And I put there and I've done it a few times. There's a great falling away going on right now. Don't you be one of them. You stick with Jesus right to the end. First Timothy 4.1. Now the spirit speaketh expressly that in the latter times some shall depart from the faith, giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of devils. The spirit speaketh expressly very clearly that in the last days there'll be people departing from the faith and departing from the faith now and they have been before we were born. Will you be one of them? You say no. Then count the cost because the pressure is rising and it's going to keep on rising. I can't tell you the goals I've set myself. I told my wife the other day, I won't even tell her. I don't want anybody saying, oh, you're too old for that. You can't do that. No. Mm -mm. I'll keep it to myself. But You remember that young guy up on the hill? Those of you that were with me back then? He's back. (laughs) He's back, and he's worse than ever. <laughs> Believe me. Hebrews 10, 25 through 27. Not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of psalm is. Why we can't get to church, that's the way we would say it. But exhorting one another, and so much the more as you see the day approaching. If you can't see the day, people can't see. The day approaching, there's something covering their eyes and their intellect. But exhorting one another, and so much the more as you see the day approaching. For if we sin willfully, after that we have received the knowledge of the truth. There remaineth no more sacrifice for sins, but a certain fearful looking for of judgment and fiery indignation, which shall devour the enemies. That's in the Bible. I didn't write it, but I'm not going to skip over it. I'm not going to say, boy, if I say that, some people won't come back again. That's not my business. My business is to preach the gospel. God adds to the church God takes away from the church that's God's business my business is just to do my duty I read of a pastor who had a friend a missionary to China Chinese Christian came up to him and he said I have memorized the entire Sermon on the Mount and he began to recite it for the missionary and he got it word perfect chapters 5 chapter 6 chapter 7 of Matthew and the missionary was astonished because remember most pastors not only don't read their Bible they don't memorize it either or pray that's the truth that's a trade secret but it's no longer a secret, is it? Because I'm telling you, that's the truth. And when he asked this Chinese man, how did you memorize it? He says, because I've been living it for the last year. He'd take a verse and go out and do it. He'd take a verse and go out and do it. He'd take a verse and go out and do it. And it burned in his memory, but he had it in his experience as well. That's a real, a real challenge. Dr. James Stewart, a British preacher of great notoriety years ago, he said this. The greatest threat to Christianity is not communism. It's not atheism. It's not materialism. It's not humanism. And I'm going to add, it's not the Democratic Party or the Republican Party or the president or anybody else. That's not the greatest threat to Christianity. The greatest threat to Christianity is Christians trying to sneak into heaven incognito. Without ever sharing their faith. Without ever living out the Christian life. Without ever becoming involved in the most significant work God is doing on planet Earth. I agree. I have told you. I believe the preaching of the gospel, what I'm doing, is by far the greatest, most important work that can be done on planet Earth. I told you about a friend of mine who said, You got to get in politics. (laughs) I said, Not me. (laughs) Oh, no. I wouldn't get past the first sign put on my lawn because someone comes and touches it, and there I would be. I'd blow my testimony. You could guess why. I'd never get elected. And if elected, I'd never last long because I'd be the guy constantly standing up and saying, That's wrong. That's not right. You can't kill babies. I can't say, it's in the Constitution. It is not in the Constitution. That's murder, plain and simple. Well, let me say this, and I'll finish. Again, I mentioned the benefits of all of this here. You know, we have a tendency to look at one thing or the other, as I've mentioned before. The cost of discipleship. Who wants to hear this? I didn't come here. I got a headache. And you're probably going to leave with a worse headache than when you came. Now, you want to be healed? We'll lay hands on you. but You better believe God to remove the cause of the headache, which is your compromise. This is coming from Duke Psychiatrist. I don't know that he's a Christian from Duke University. This statement some years ago came out. Duke Psychiatrist Redford Williams comments this. Listen, this is coming from a psychiatrist. People who find religion useful but selectively shape their creed in their own interests or other interests tend to be less mentally healthy. That's a psychiatrist speaking. Not a preacher. I didn't say it. He said it. You take the Bible and you say, well, I don't know. <laughs> and so I'm going to fit it like a suit. You get know, the tailor, you know, he you measures your shoulders and the arms and the legs. And there it is. But that's not the gospel. You can't make the gospel suit you. You can't ask God to accommodate you. You've got to go with what God says here. And it boils down once again to this. You either do it or you don't. We all fail in the attempt. I think I fail more than you do. I ain't giving up. I'm not giving up. No. Finally, Dr. Williams went as far as recommending that people, quote, become a truly practicing member of the church, practicing whatever is preached with all the heart. Remember, he's a psychiatrist. He's talking about mental health. We're here talking about health of the spirit, health of the mind, and interestingly, the health of your body. I don't have time. I'm out of time to give you the statistics of what following Christ will do for your physical health, your mental health, and your spirit. You want to be a man? Follow Christ. You want to be a woman? Follow Christ. Do not follow that crowd. Amen. Do not follow that broad way. Follow Christ. Take your lumps, because they're coming. you probably got a few already. There's more coming. This fight is, I don't know what round we're in, but it's not over yet. The bell has not rung. We're still in a fight, and we're going to be in a fight. And every time you get hit, and you take it, get tougher and tougher. I tell you, falling on the floor six months ago, flat on my face. Taught me a lesson. What was the lesson? Well, among other lessons, I can still do all things through Christ. I had a 300-pound snowblower fall on my head after I hit the floor. That's how the devil works. First, he kicks you. Then when you're down, he steps on your throat. Bad enough, I fell flat on my face. Bad enough, I couldn't break my fall. Bad enough, I broke my beautiful nose. And then I had a 300-pound snowblower fall on top of my head to boot. And I got up under my own steam. Why? Because I'm strong now. Because Christ in me is strong. And we are indestructible in Christ. Let's go before the Lord. Oh, we bless you, Father. We praise you. We thank you. We give you all the praise. We give you all the glory. We give you all the thanks. Let not one single person in this sanctuary, nor anyone who is watched or listening by way of radio, walk away from this message. That's what I pray, God. I pray they would not walk away from this message, but rather to say, Here I am my Lord, send me if no one else goes with me, I'm still going. As our elders said Wednesday night, one of our elders said the other night, we're going with you. <laughs> we're going without you. Amen. But we're going. Oh, God, you put us here in this desolate wasteland called upstate New York. I mean, spiritually desolate. Spiritually desolate. Oh, we've got great mountains. We've got bigger mountains to climb than that when it comes to morality and the gospel of Jesus Christ. But in Jesus' name. We will find a way or we will make a way. But we're going over and through those mountains to conquer in the name of Jesus Christ. You will send us soldiers and you will send us whom we need to fill all the ministries of this church. We're going to need in the very near future. As the world goes through a meltdown, we will have the answer. Oh God, let no one. Because they're older and senior citizen look at their feeble body and say, oh, not me, I'm exempt. You're not exempt. You're not going to make an excuse unless that's what you want to do. And the young people too. No, no more excuses. We will rise to the occasion in this generation and be counted. We'll be hated. That's okay. Because we're not better than our master. We give you praise. We give you glory. We give you honor. For great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. Bless the Lord. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. They call us holy rollers and what they say is true. But if they knew what we were rolling about, they'd be rolling too. Bless my friends as they go on their way. I ask you today, Lord God, to keep them, protect them, fill them with your spirit and let them be able to say, this is the day that the Lord has made. I will rejoice. I will be glad in it.